Welcome to another episode of our Take 15 series. I'm Rob Gowan, and joining me today is Chris Malloy, Professor of Finance at Harvard Business School. Uh, professor Malloy conducts research in a number of fields, including behavioral finance, uh, which is what we're going to be focused on today. So, Professor Malloy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, just to start us off a little bit, um, the efficient market hypothesis versus behavioral finance. Um, sure. Can we call behavioral finance the opposite, or do we want to just think about it as introducing more variables than the efficient market hypothesis allows for? Sure, sure. No, I think that's a good question. I think this is a, a common um, source of misunderstanding among people who don't really understand the difference. I think the key way to think about behavioral finance versus the efficient market hypothesis is that the efficient market hypothesis ultimately says that the returns on stocks should be associated with their risk. So stocks that have high returns should have high risk. And essentially, the difference between what the behavioral view is, is that that's not the case. Behavioralists will say you can have high returns that are completely unaccompanied with high risk. And so that is basically the, the fundamental distinction, is that in efficient markets, you can't have one without the other. You can't have risk, you can't have returns without risk, whereas in the behavioral view, you can. You can have stocks that at any given point in time, their price is wrong, and you can get high returns and not subject yourself to risk. Interesting. So, um, building upon that a little bit, there seems to be a lot of uh, disagreement between efficient market hypothesis by definition sure. and behavioral yeah. finance. Um, do you know if, if down the line there'll ever be some kind of unifying theory that sort of takes the best from both models and helps us explain the financial world? Sure, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, efficient markets is in some sense a unified theory um, in the sense that, you know, when you think at the, the basics of efficient markets, high risk and high return, well, what is that risk? Well, one way people think about risk in terms of thinking about the efficient markets is, well, the market. So stocks that go up have high returns. Uh, when the market goes up, are riskier in the sense because they're paying you exactly when you don't need it. They, that's what high risk means. They're paying you when you don't need it, when the market's going up. And so that's a very compelling idea. The problem with that is it just doesn't work in the data. Stocks that have high exposures to the market, that move a lot with the market, just don't have high returns. So high beta stocks don't have high returns. Low beta stocks don't have low returns. And so you know, taking that's kind of the unified view of efficient markets, and the problem is it just doesn't sort of work in the data. And so what's been the response to that? Well, the, the efficient sort of risk side has said, well, what we should do is just maybe we're not measuring risk correctly. Maybe we need to add some other sort of, like you said before, maybe we need to add some other measures of risk. Let's add some, maybe it's not just the market. Maybe it's, you know, the way value stocks move. Maybe that's just a proxy for some other risk that's correlated with unemployment or distress or something like that. And maybe if we put that in, then that'll explain how stocks move and stocks again will move with risk. And so the behavioral side is saying, well, you know, we don't really think it's about risk at all, so our framework is different. Our framework is we believe there's cognitive mistakes and some psychology, and we believe that that leads people to act in a correlated way at all at the same time. And then we also believe on, this, on the flip side that there are things out there in the market that prevent those prices from getting sort of um, corrected, and those are called limits to arbitrage. So that combination of psychology, cognitive mistakes, and limits to arbitrage leads prices to be wrong. And so this question of could you take that and link it to this risk uh, framework is very hard because the sort of essence of the behavioral view is it's not about risk. Um, 
you can understand prices moving because of some combination of correlated demand and frictions or limits to arbitrage. And risk is not necessarily a key component of that. And so it's hard to say to what extent these two views will come together. Um, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Behavioral finance recognizes that there are certain suboptimal behaviors. Um, and if we wanted to divide investors into institutional and retail, can you comment whether or not there are any behaviors that tend to be more persistent on the institutional sure, side versus yeah, retail? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, one of the stylized facts in behavioral finance is sort of that um, a lot of these so-called anomalies. Anomalies are examples of, you know, for a group of stocks that has high returns that we can't necessarily pinpoint the risk associated with it, so we call it an anomaly. The risk people would say, efficient markets people say, it's just some risk we haven't measured. Um, most of those anomalies tend to be concentrated in small stocks, and small stocks are both stocks that are generally harder to short, so they have that friction piece, but they're also stocks that tend to be held more by retail investors, and so there is this notion of retail investors driving a lot of the, the anomalies. And then if you just look at the trading behavior of retail investors, there is a lot of evidence piling up that retail investors in particular are making lots of cognitive mistakes. They're overconfident, so they trade too much. They're prone to this, what's called the disposition effect, where they hold on to stocks too long. They are reluctant to sell stocks that are losers, um, and they cut their winners too quickly. Um, and th I think the evidence suggests that retail investors are much more prone to some of those types of mistakes. Um, they're much more likely to you know, naively diversify in their 401ks, where they'll be presented with a menu of options and simply just, if they're presented with four, just choose one over four and 25% in each of the four categories. Whereas if you then look on the, the mutual fund side, the professional investor side, I mean, I think there is some evidence that mutual fund managers are subject to the disposition effect, for example. Um, there is some evidence that mutual fund managers, you know, have high trading costs and that's sometimes correlated with overconfidence. But I think the bulk of the evidence is sort of that retail investors are more prone and that mutual fund managers while prone, are kind of more exposed to you know education about behavioral finance, and are probably what would be an interesting question would be to look you know ten years from now to see what to what extent professional fund managers are still exhibiting these behaviors, um, because you know retail investors aren't going to these types of seminars and understanding these, whereas professional managers are. Um, but I think the bulk of the evidence so far suggests retail people are kind of getting the brunt of some of these cognitive mistakes. So now that. You know, behavioral finance introduces the idea of cognitive mistakes. Um, how does that change uh, portfolio risk management modeling? Sure. No, I mean it, it's an important thing to think about. You know, what do you do about it? Well, you know, if prices are wrong, so you could take advantage of it. Okay, that's one. That's one approach. But you know, the limits to arbitrage view says maybe the reason prices are wrong is because nobody can get rid of that friction or nobody can cause prices to converge and so you can't take advantage of it. So then, well, what do you do about it? Well, you know, on the risk management side, you have to think of if you're not going to take advantage of anomalies, you at least need to, you know, control the risk that your portfolio is exposed to. And so, you know, what does risk management boil down to? It boils down to, you know, not having huge losses. Um, and so, you know, first you want your people to, who are in charge of affecting risk management policies to not be subject to some of these biases, you know, doubling down and things like that. So I think one way you can help is just institute some mechanical policies that take the human element out of it. 
particularly in cases when people have had a tremendous loss and so you don't, there's no incentive. You take that incentive that people might have to double down. Uh, you just take that out of their hand and put in some sort of mechanical procedures. Um, but then too, you know, think about how behavioral finance would say that, um, you know, some of these cognitive mistakes are going to affect uh, price, prices in sort of a you know, risk management lens. Um, and, you know, correlated investor demand suggests that uh, crashes are possible, sentiment is going to move prices. And so I think the important thing from a risk management side, aside from just putting controls into place to take the human element out, is to just understand exposures. You understand to what extent you're exposed to sentiment risk. And then, you know, understand sort of on the hedging side, you know, one of these, one of the problems on this hedging side that is an example of limits to arbitrage is how hard it is to hedge. Um, it's very hard to find two stocks that are either perfectly correlated, you know, one might have a lot of idiosyncratic risk, and so it's hard to hedge, or, and this is more common what happened recently, is stocks that you think are uncorrelated are actually much more correlated than when you thought. And so I think just the emphasis on understanding exactly how your exposure, what, you're, what you are exposed to, uh, is particularly important on sort of the risk management side relative to behavioral finance. Well, Professor Malloy, thanks a lot for spending some time with us, and thank you for watching. And for a full catalog of all our webcasts, please visit cfawebcasts.org. Copyright 2011, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.